If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. If you have a pew Bible, I'm pretty sure it's page 602. If you don't see a pew Bible, you don't have your own. It's also printed in our bulletin. We've been walking through the book of Isaiah for quite a while now with a few breaks here and there. And that question always comes up, should we take a break on Easter Sunday, take a particular look at the life of Jesus, uh, one of the resurrection passages and I thought there was enough foreshadowing of our Savior to come in this passage to stick with Isaiah. Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel, the evangelical prophet, the gospel in the Old Testament, any number of similar descriptors. So without further ado, let's look at God's word. Hear now his holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. In a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea in all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the, village, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and Dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Hear you deaf and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake, to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. 
They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not I, the Lord, against who, uh, excuse me, was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set, on, it set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, may it not be said of us that we are deaf, that we are blind, that we are those who see many things but do not observe them, that our ears are open but we do not hear. Let it be said of us that by your Spirit's help we have heard and seen your message and we have taken it to heart and that we have sought refuge in our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Kids, go home and tell your parents that Pastor John said to read the Gospels backwards. Now, I'm actually Pastor Matt. Sorry to confuse anybody there. But Pastor John Piper once said that to his church. Why? Well, he was talking about the Gospels in the Bible, the New Testament, the stories of the good news. That's what gospel or evangel means. The stories of good news that Jesus of Nazareth accomplished. And he said, read the Gospels backwards. Why? Because you, could, you should read the stories of Jesus, his teaching, his healing, his miracles. You should read all of it like you know the end of the story. Read the beginning and the middle with the end in mind. Because Jesus came to die for the sins of his people. But he also came to live again so that his people might taste the life more abundant and free. That's what Easter is all about. That's what Isaiah 42 is all about. It's all about Jesus. Even though Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And today we're going to read Isaiah 42 backwards. Not exactly. And not for the exact same reasons, but we will start at the end. Our first point this morning. The stubborn servant, the stubborn servant, verses 18 through 25. We start with the feel-good point, right? Verse 18 says, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? Verse 20 is pretty similar as well. Who's Isaiah talking to? Who's he talking about? He's talking to Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. They have become what Isaiah predicted they would become back in Isaiah chapter 6. They hear, they don't really hear. They see, they don't really see. They are not simply deaf and blind, they are stubborn. You see, many people, young and old, would long to have perfect hearing. That's not what Isaiah is describing here. He's not describing the person who needs a hearing aid. That's not it. He's describing the person, for example, who has a hearing aid. 
who has all the tools they need to hear adequately, although maybe not perfectly. They have everything they need to hear adequately, but they turn it off because they don't want to hear what someone is saying to them. Won't make you raise your hands if you've ever done that before, but bottom line, Isaiah is not describing a disability. He's describing stubbornness, willful disobedience to God's word. Verse 21 says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. This is what they had. They had God's word. They had certain privileges. That's a charged word today, I understand. But it's a biblical concept, properly understood. Romans 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Then what advantage has the Jew of what or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, Paul says. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. By God's grace, some of us were born into Christian homes. That's a privilege. That's an advantage. One we shouldn't take lightly. Some of you have never known a day when you didn't know Jesus is your Savior. Praise the Lord for that. My friend Brad, a fellow pastor, he has one of those drugs in jail time kind of testimonies. And you might be tempted to say, oh, that's such an exciting testimony. <sighs> Woe is me, I have a boring testimony. I've known Jesus is my Savior all my life. Woe is me. You know what Brad would say? I wish I had a boring testimony. He said to me many times, and I hope my kids have boring testimonies. It's a privilege to hear God's word from an early age. Don't despise it. Don't apologize for it. Cherish it. That is not what Israel did. And in these verses, you'll see that Isaiah is foreshadowing the exile of God's people, the way that Babylon would conquer them and ship them off, take them from their blessed promised land. They would, according to verse 22, become plunder with none to rescue. The spoils of war just carried off like a prize. Why did that happen? Actually, why is the wrong question. Who? You'll notice the phrase who occurs several times in these verses. Who is responsible for this? Look at verse 24. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned in whose ways they would not walk in whose law they would not obey. Jacob, also known as Israel, both names of the, their patriarch. Who gave up Jacob like the spoils of war for someone to loot and plunder? In one sense, it's the Lord. In another sense, what else is Isaiah saying? It's us. It's our fault. It was the Lord against whom we have sinned. And notice, we, not you. Now he'll say they later on, I get that. But notice, we, we have sinned. Isaiah includes himself. Isaiah was a pretty good guy, right? Prophet, man of God, not a hypocrite. We read pretty good things about Isaiah. So why does Isaiah lump himself in with this whole rotten group of people who haven't listened to God's word? Because he still remembers what it was like when he saw the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 6, verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook, 
At the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angel armies. God's people, not what God called them to be. God's prophet, his other servants, also not what God called them to be. How could they be? God's standard is perfection because he is perfect. He is holy. For Isaiah, it didn't matter how much better he was than anyone else because he had still fallen short. He knew that he and all of Israel deserved exactly what they were getting. In fact, they deserved worse. God's servant, Israel, had failed in the task that God had given them. They had failed to be a light to the nations around them, as it talks about in verse 6, in part because they had not heard God's word, God's message. They were stubborn. They were acting like they were deaf, not listening to God's word, doing whatever their hearts wanted to do. They despised their privileges that they had received, so those privileges had no effect, no advantage. Who needs to hear that this morning? The Christian who is dedicated in serving faithfully. Actually, yes. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let anyone who thinks he stands, let anybody who thinks I'm good, I've got it together, take heed, watch out, lest he fall. Do not assume you are better than others, that you do not need God's grace. I need thee every hour, we sing. What about non-Christians who are here for various reasons this morning? Maybe Easter Sunday was a tradition in your family. Maybe your relatives asked you to come. Maybe you're here to find out more about Christianity, no matter who you are or why you're here. Yes, you need to hear this too. What about the Christian or non-Christian who has a litany of ways that the church has failed? Maybe it's ways that the church has failed you. Maybe it's ways the church has failed in general. Yes, you need to hear this too. And for the record, I was talking about some of the ways that present-day churches have failed just two weeks ago. Sermon on Isaiah 40. You can go back and listen if you missed it. But seeing others' hypocrisy does not make you righteous. <laughs> Isaiah saw Israel's failure, but Isaiah still knew he needed a Savior. Yes, people have failed on every side of every spectrum in modern life, Christians and secular organizations, both sides of the political divide. We've all had a rough year or two. We all could do better. All have sinned, Paul says in Romans 3. Both Jews and Gentiles, those who know God's standard, those who don't consciously know it. God's servant, 2,700 years ago, was stubborn and rebellious and deserved punishment, and they got it. And in a sense, not much has changed today about our need, about our sin. But we know the end of the story. One thing has changed. God has clearly met that need on the first Easter. God sent the one that Isaiah foretold, and that takes us back to the beginning of the chapter. Our second point this morning, the saving servant. The saving servant in verses 1 through 9. If we had started here, 
Maybe we wouldn't have understood how much we need this servant. Verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Let's talk about justice for a moment. If we're not careful, if we're not careful as Christians, it might begin to sound like we are against justice and for injustice. Why do I say that? Sometimes I hear Christians, I'm not sure it's our church for the record, but I hear Christians talk very derisively about social justice. Now, I understand why that might happen. I understand why we might disagree with any number of things in certain social justice agendas. But I think we can do better than imitating the world's destructive discourse, sarcasm, derision, all those things. Because isn't what we want to say, isn't this what we want to say as Christians? What's the standard of justice that we're striving for? What do we think is right and good and true and beautiful? And yes, we might have different standards than the world around us. We often will if we're using a biblical standard. And that's a good thing because it can lead to good questions, discussions like this. Why do you think this standard or that standard is just and right? Can I tell you what standard I think is just and right? I believe in a God who created the world with intentionality and that in that intentionality, it extends even to our bodies and our biology. And at the same time, as Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, God made man upright, but he has sought out many schemes. We have abandoned God's standards in so many ways, and that has led to pain, to brokenness. And what is the solution for that brokenness or sin and misery, as our denominational standards say? See, every worldview is ultimately asking that question. What is the solution to the problems we see in this world? And Christians believe those problems, they will not be fully fixed until King Jesus comes and establishes his forever kingdom. Now, some of the words that we read in verse 1, my chosen in whom my soul delights, similar words were uttered by a voice from heaven 700 years after this, at the baptism of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form upon him like a dove. That was the beginning, not the end, the beginning of Jesus bringing justice, right order to the universe. The beginning, not the completion. And the Holy Spirit was an intimate part of Jesus' ministry for his entire time on earth, his conception, his childhood, his baptism, his temptation, his public ministry, his death, resurrection, and ascension, all of that. God would send his Holy Spirit upon this new and better servant to accomplish the task that his first servant, Israel, God's people, had failed to do. But this servant, but Jesus, he, he looks strange to God's people, not what they were expecting. He didn't have a sword in his fist to conquer the awful Romans who didn't worship the true and living God. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. It says of the one who will come some 700 years later, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully 
bring forth justice. He didn't need the shout. Derek Thomas says, People who have to shout have generally either a poor case to make or are insecure about the respect they can expect. That goes for preachers too, he says. Ouch. Jesus didn't need the shout. He was gentle. A bruised reed he will not break. Imagine a stick that is, that is cracked, but it's, it's not fully snapped in two. Jesus will not finish it off. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. How many of you have ever felt like that? Now or in the past? Felt like your candle was just ready to go out. The wax was running out. The wind was about to snuff you out. The, the, the pressure like a drip, drip, drip was just too much. Then you need to meet this Savior. Oh, he's not weak, but he is gentle. He's gentle, but he's not a pushover. He will faithfully bring forth justice, verse 3 says. He will faithfully do it, and he will not grow weak or discouraged because he is God himself, the one who gives strength to the weary, Isaiah 40 says. He will faithfully do all this until justice reaches from sea to sea. Has that happened yet? Oh, not yet. Not supposed to. But we know the end of the story. How will it happen? Well, verse 5, you'll see the, the audience shifts here. Now, God is addressing the servant himself instead of Israel. He says, I who created, I'm paraphrasing here, I who created the earth, I will use all my power so that you will fulfill your mission. You will fulfill the ancient covenant that my people broke, that I promised to fulfill anyway. Just as I said back in Genesis 3.15, you will fulfill the covenant. You will be a light to the nations as God's people always should have been. Jesus will bring the gospel, not simply to God's people who have failed and who need relief, but to all the nations that Israel was supposed to reach. This light will be piercing, verses 6 and 7 say. It'll open their eyes like the sunrise on a morning when you want to sleep in. You can't ignore it. It's just there. He'll free the prisoners, those who are trapped in sin and selfishness and rebellion. And as the Gospels say, he will do it by preaching, by proclaiming a message of forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. The truth will set them free. Free to be who they were always supposed to be. Barry Webb says it this way, the servant will undo all the horrendous and degrading effects that sin has had on the human race and restore to people their true freedom and dignity as sons and daughters of God. He'll fix everything that's broken. He will right every wrong. And he is already doing it. As Revelation says, I am making all things new. And is there any doubt that he can or that he will do it? Verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Because God's people were stubborn servants, God sent the saving servant to succeed in all the ways that they had failed. 
And what's the proper response to such a gracious salvation? That's our third point this morning, the song of the servant. The song of the servant in verses 10 through 13. Verse 10 says, sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Singing is the proper response to God's salvation. Especially if you know the end of the story. What if I don't sing? You should respond to God's salvation with some tangible expression of joy. And it seems that you should do it in a way that others can see. I mean, God commands us to sing here in his word. And he says this singing, it should, it should happen to the ends of the earth. And if it isn't happening, if it's not happening in some corner of the globe, our songs, our expressions of joy should ring out until it does. Your second John Piper quote of the day, third, if you include Kurtz from Good Friday, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. If there is someone, somewhere, that does not joyfully praise and worship our great God and Redeemer, then we still have work to do. We don't need to beat ourselves up, but we also need to make sure we don't rest on our laurels, that we don't get complacent and know that we still have a job to do and we still have a great God to empower us as we do that job. God commands for there to be praise to the ends of the earth in the smallest villages of Kedar, a Gentile area, even on the tops of the mountains. This was always the intention, the mission for God's people to be a light to the nations, to be a song that brings joy and blessing to those around them. If you don't know how to sing in that way, to express that gratitude, then I, 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 I would ask you, talk to someone. One of the pastors, one of the elders, talk to that guy you know who's a Christian who just seems to have the right answers to the questions you ask. And if you do know this song of praise and gratitude for the God who has saved you, then sing that song. Sing a new song of God's mercies made new every morning to you. And I would also challenge you, if your circle of friends and associates is only Christians, branch out. Pray that God would give you one non-Christian friend in your life. Not so that you can imitate their values, but so that you can tell them the reason for the hope that's within you. Build relationships in the hope that you can tell about your hope. In a week, as Doug mentioned earlier, some of us from Forest Gate are going to take food to some overworked, underappreciated teachers at a local school very close to us. We're not necessarily going to have Bible verses on the cupcakes and that kind of thing, but but we do hope that our good deed will be seasoned with the salt of kindness so that we might be able to answer this question. Why did you do this? Just wanted to show our appreciation for what you do. That's great, but really, why? Because we've been shown great mercy by another, which we didn't deserve. And we are so grateful that we want to do the same for others. Now, where does this song that starts in verse 10, where does it stop? Does it, does it stop after verse 12? Does it stop? Does it go all the way to verse 17? I could argue it either way, but there definitely seems to be a new theme that emerges in verse 13, the reason that we sing. And that leads to our final, final point this morning. 
the zeal of the servant. The zeal of the servant. I think there's some symmetry here. The last point has a Z in it, but verses 13 through 17. Earlier I asked, is there any doubt that God can and will do this? But doubt is funny, isn't it? Doubt sneaks up on us when we least expect it. Is that Satan's handiwork? Or is it our own weak faith? And why can't it be both? And what's the solution? Isn't it frequent reminders? The kind you get from repeated exposure to God's word, from daily prayer and Bible reading, from regular church attendance, from regular association with God's people who are led and directed by his word, who drip with godly words and godly thoughts and actions. Or to use more technical language, the ordinary means of grace, the word, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and fellowship. That's how we fight against our doubts. The God will be good to us. Will he be? Will, can, I, can I really trust him? That's how we fight against those things. We dwell on God's promises, which one of them you see in verse 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. The word mighty, the Hebrew word gabor shows up in here. That's the same word that is used of Boaz in the book of Ruth, if you all remember that series over a year ago. Boaz was not a mighty warrior, but he was mighty strong in godly character, wasn't he? And though Jesus did not show up with a sword in his fist to fight the Romans in the first century, he is indeed a mighty warrior who is slowly and surely building his church in his kingdom, who will one day come as a warrior. Make no mistake, Revelation shows it to be true, and he will fight back all the forces of sin and evil. For a long time, he will hold his peace, as verse 14 says, giving us and others a chance to repent, a chance to enter in to his kingdom, to be welcomed in by his grace into his kingdom. But one day, his kingdom will come in answer to our prayers. Verse 14, for a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. Does this destruction here, does it have a purpose? You bet it does. Verse 16, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. To those who are blind but need sight, those who have resisted God's word but want to turn to him, there is hope. God can open your blind eyes just as he did for Saul the terrorist, the one who became Paul the apostle. That same hope does not exist for those who cling to their idols, who hope in idols, verse 17 says, for those who hope in something more than they trust in God. We talked about idols last week. That's all I'll say about them for now. There's hope. 
That hope doesn't extend to those who have a Savior on the side, but for those who cling to Jesus, whether it's a strong faith that never doubts or a weak faith that barely holds on, it says he will guide us through the darkness, through the storms, through the crossfire, the enemy's direct assaults, or as Isaiah says elsewhere, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zeal, focused, determined, focused energy to do all that he needs to do to save his people as he promised. Zeal that would cause him to fully obey God's word on earth so that he could be the spotless sacrifice for sins. Zeal that would allow him to despise the shame and endure the cross, the horrible torture of the cross, the wrath of God poured out full force upon him, not for his sins, but for the sins of his people. Zeal that never lost sight of the joy that was set before him. Zeal that knew death could not hold him, that he would rise again, that he would ascend to heaven to pour out his spirit upon his people to empower them until the end. Zeal that would one day come again, that will one day come again and establish his kingdom, his home that he has prepared for us. That zeal will endure till the end of the story when God brings us back home to his promised land. That zeal is enough to get you through the darkest chapters of this earthly story. Not your zeal, which might fade and falter at any given time, but Jesus' zeal, the zeal of the servant, the kind of zeal that keeps popping back up in the New Testament that keeps fueling our faith, that keeps carrying us on to the end of the story, the zeal that you see in passages like this, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. My friends, live your lives like you already know the end of the story. Because you do. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are weak and wounded, sick and sore. We are running from you, running from any number of things on any given day. We are not worthy of the least of your mercies, but we are so grateful that we have found mercy in Christ Jesus, our Savior, who is gentle to those who are broken and lowly, those who know their sin and know their need of a Savior. And we are also grateful that our Savior, who is gentle with us, is mighty and fierce with our enemies, his enemies, those who would keep us from him, those who would try to lead us in any number of other directions, knowingly or unknowingly. Oh, Father, help us to keep our eyes on him. 
in a world of distractions, in a world full of idols, in a world full of things saying, just try this on for size. This will save you. This will heal you. Oh, Father, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. And help us to know that even as we weakly cling to him, he will never let go of us. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. Let that be our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen.